0: We'll start recording now. Excellent. I'm going to hide in the background. Open, open this up now in a moment. Okay. <laughs> okay I'm going to press the start button and we'll all right
1: let's do it good luck thank
0: you keep the stream in
1: Great. It looks like we're live.
0: We are. I think. Yeah. Crowd is gathering. Now you're all very welcome to this week's Center for Early Modern History Seminar here at Trinity College Dublin um, I'm Patrick Walsh and as always I'll be your host and it's a great honor today to introduce our speaker who is Dr Scott Sowerby Scour- who comes from Northwestern University in the United States and though today he comes from a very early morning in California so we're especially grateful to Scott for talking to us. What is an ungodly hour for him. And Scott is well known as an historian of toleration. Um, his big book, Making Toleration, the Repealers and the Glorious Revolution, came out in 2013. And he's currently working on a major new book manuscript for Harvard University Press entitled Absolution and Arms The Violent or- Origins of Religious Toleration in Early Modern Europe. And it, it is A subsection of that project that is going to talk to us today and his title for today's talk is Recruiting Irish Catholics for Imperial Warfare, 1756 to 93. And just before I hand over to Scott, I just want to remind people that if you want to pose a question during the presentation, you can post the question in the question and answer box that appears at the bottom of your screen. And we will come to the questions afterwards. And so feel free to post questions as to talk is ongoing and then I'll pose those questions to Dr. Sowerby at the end of the paper. Um, likewise, if you have any thoughts, post them there as well. This, re- this, this session will be recorded and will be available on the Long Room Hub SoundCloud page afterwards as well so you can listen back. Um, so I'm now going to hand over to, Scott, to Dr. Scott Sowerby.
1: Terrific, thank you, Patrick. Uh, yes, I'm coming to you from uh, I guess it's sunny, although it's a little bit early. It's only 8 a.m. though. It's not, it's not like 6 or 5 a.m. I've been hearing uh, horror stories from my colleagues back uh, in Evanston, Illinois, about uh, students coming to seminar in bed. And I was a little bit tempted to follow that route this morning, but I managed to manage to get myself up on time. So um, at, when I originally proposed this paper to Patrick, it was January. It was a completely different world. I was going to be with you in person and then that is my great regret. I mean, it is nice to be able to come to Dublin without jet lag, but I was hoping to see uh, uh, the streets of Dublin all decked out for Christmas time. Um, So perhaps some future year. Um, And um, when we switched to Zoom, Patrick and I agreed that uh, I might give a slightly shorter talk than I was planning on. so I'm going to try and keep it to 30 minutes to leave plenty of time for questions. Um, and uh, what I'll be presenting today is, in part, an overview of the book I'm working on, uh, which, as Patrick mentioned, is called Absolution and Arms, the Violent Origins of Religious Toleration in Early Modern Europe. And then uh, at the end, uh, for the last half of my presentation, I'll zero in on um, the question of Irish Catholics in the 18th century and how that fits into my project, uh, especially because I'd like your collective help with a couple of research problems that have been occupying my attention. So uh, my argument, the argument of my book is as follows, that the need for troops from religious minorities propelled the granting of religious toleration in early modern Europe. And underpinning this argument is another one, that ultimately the changing condition of the state was the main driving force in how and where toleration was granted in early modern Europe and who received it. So my project certainly has an intellectual history side to it, but I don't tend to see the invention of new ideas as the main driver of change in the history of religious toleration in the early modern period. It's not that ideas don't matter in my project, they certainly do, Uh, you know, people had brains, rulers had brains, and they considered what options they would pursue. They used their brains. They were influenced by ideas about what was feasible, what was desirable. Uh, But rather than putting the invention of new ideas in the driving seat, my work emphasizes the pragmatic or practical reasons why a ruler might decide to grant liberty of conscience to certain groups at certain times. The European state, was always fundamentally in this period, a war-making machine. And the main pragmatic reason for offering religious toleration was to be more successful in war. So I should also note, it's important for me to say this right at the outset that I'm not talking about the history of tolerance or everyday relations between faith groups, which is an entirely different subject, very interesting one. Um, But I'm skeptical, generally skeptical of the idea that in the early modern period, you see any real or measurable increase in feelings of religious tolerance in the broad majority of the population. So, I'm not explaining uh, the growth of religious tolerance. Instead, what I'm seeking to explain is the growth of religious toleration. And um, by religious toleration, I mean grants by the state of religious freedom to nonconformist groups. And I'm seeking to explain the rise of that across the early modern period. I am something of a Whig when it comes to religious toleration, I do believe that it grew over time with especially noticeable acceleration in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, when most European states granted at least some uh, form of accommodation to at least some of the religious minorities. And I think it's perfectly possible to have a growth in religious toleration without a corresponding growth in religious tolerance. To put it differently, edicts of toleration coming down from on high are not necessarily evidence of social tolerance on the ground, and they could expand even if day-to-day ecumenism did not. Now, one of the attractions of this argument for me is that it helps to explain change over time. The state uh, was itself changing over the course of this period. So the state was put under increasing pressure uh, by the demands of warfare. You can see this as fueled by what's sometimes called the military revolution and gunpowder weaponry if you want, but whether you, you believe in the military revolution or not, and that's its own controversy, it's undeniable that the size of armies grew massively across this period especially starting in the late 17th and into the early 18th century Um, and the increasing size of armies into the 18th century put more pressure on rulers to accommodate religious minorities because they needed their military service even more than they would have in the 16th or the early 17th century. So let me briefly outline my research project chronologically. I see the history of toleration in early modern Europe as going through uh, five phases, which I'm separating into five chapters for the purposes of my book. And each of these phases was driven by the changing character of the state. So let me briefly go through all of that. So chapter one. Um, So my project picks up around the year 1570. I I could have started earlier, I'm happy to talk later in the question period if anyone's interested, I have a sort of complicated uh, justification for why I'm not starting before 1570. Um, By the time we get to 1570, we're already deep into an age of fracture. Um, The Netherlands is on, uh, the Dutch Republic is not yet born, but the United provinces are on the precipice of revolt. Um, and France is deep in the wars of religion. The Holy Roman Empire has been dri- uh, divided into competing Catholic and Protestant assemblies of states. And all these fractures, of course, were driven ultimately by the Reformation, which had a profoundly destabilizing effect, especially in the Northern and Western Europe, of course. Now, uh, these fractures within the state led some rulers to embrace the advice of the so-called politique. That's obviously a word in French from French history. So these were thinkers who argued that toleration should be granted to certain religious minorities for pragmatic reasons, to keep the state together or to help the state defend against external enemies. The ideas of the politics actually weren't new, I don't think, um, but they became increasingly popular with rulers in certain states. You can sort of see this kind of pragmatism underlying the Union of Utrecht in 1579, which granted a limited freedom of conscience to Dutch Catholics or the Edict of Nantes in 1598, which granted liberties to French Protestants or Huguenots. And it's important to note that these changes affected some states much more severely than others. And there were other states like Spain that remained strong and uh, relatively united throughout this period and didn't face the same challenges as some other countries. So that's the first period. Then. Um, in, this, in my second chapter, in the second phase, uh, the state rallies. Um, you could attribute this to states uh, becoming stronger after the initial shock of the Reformation with rulers figuring out how to manage or contain religious dissent. Uh, in some cases, this was because of internal settlements like the Edict of Nantes in France. In other cases, you had the formation of new and religiously more distinct states as in the low countries where you have the separation of a north uh, controlled by Protestants and the, and the south um, controlled by Catholics. But uh, the 17th century was not generally a great period for religious nonconformists. Uh, religious toleration had not been a popular thing in the 16th century and it certainly wasn't popular in the 17th either. It was something that some states had felt compelled to grant to stave off civil war or um, external invasion, but persecution was much more popular or what I would call prestigious as well with uh, r- rulers and with religious majorities. So most rulers in this period were intent on currying favor with religious m- majorities rather than with nonconformist conformist groups. Um, and persecution was also prestigious on an interne- international level um, because toleration was associated with weak, weaker states that had nearly fallen apart like Poland or the early Dutch Republic while stronger states like Spain had resisted toleration. So if you wanted to project strength as a ruler, you did it by persecuting religious minorities, not by tolerating them. And the exceptions prove the rule. King Charles I negotiated with the Catholic Confederacy in the 1640s, offering them toleration in exchange for them shipping an army of 10,000 men to England. Uh, The negotiations, as is well known, took a very long time and the army never arrived. And then Charles pays a huge price for this politically uh, as English Protestants punish him for being in bed, not just literally with Henrietta Maria, but metaphorically with Catholics. So uh, Cromwell, interestingly, did not pay a similar price when he employed Irish Catholics in his armies during his campaign in Ireland in 1649 and 50, as Mikael's Eusikra has shown. But that just goes to show how much this drive to persecute was operating on the level of rhetoric and prestige. Um, Cromwell certainly deployed anti-Catholic rhetoric in a way way that satisfied his English supporters. Meanwhile, the liberties granted in France uh, to French Protestants were being gradually eroded throughout this period until Louis XIV seeking to bolster his own credentials as Europe's greatest Catholic monarch revoked the Edict of Nantes in 1685. All right, so the third period. you could say that the revocation of the Edict did not sowed the seeds for its own destruction as 150,000 Huguenots fled France and took their skilled labor and military prowess to a number of states, including the Dutch Republic, uh, England, and of course Ireland, as well as Prussia. Um, and the next four decades saw an increasing interest in how minority populations could be deployed strategically by rulers, either as laborers or for the men, young men among them as soldiers rulers had at their disposal new uh, methods of calculating population coming out of the discipline of political economy, which could perhaps um, lead to new methods for evaluating the strategic options they faced. But in order to attract the labor of religious nonconformists, you generally had to offer them some degree of religious toleration. So for instance, just to take a military example, um, Scottish Catholics went off to fight, some Scottish Catholics went to fight in the Russian army um, under um, Sophia um, in the early 1680s. But in exchange, they asked for the right to build the first Catholic church in Moscow, which was granted to them in 1685, which is the very same year as the revocation. Chapter four. Um, so by the time you get to the mid 18th centuries, armies and navies are growing increasingly larger. These changes are facilitated of course by um, the increasing uh, capacity of many states to tax um, and to use those taxes to float larger national debts. So here we see the rise of what's often called the fiscal military state or the military fiscal state. For some reason, we seem to be unable to decide which adjectives should go first. Um, And this is a shift that begins in the late uh, 17th century and then accelerates into the 18th century. Um, But the growth of the military fiscal state I guess I'll go with that for this paper. Uh, Wasn't just about finance, it was also about recruitment. The state needed to find enough willing recruits to staff these increasingly large armies and navies, and it needed to do it without hurting the industrial and commercial base that provided all those necessary taxes. So states in this period were quite eager to find new recruits, even among religious dissenters, and those dissenters often had their own demands. Nowhere was this more obvious than in Ireland, as I'll be exploring later in this paper. Britain started recruiting Irish Catholics into its armies in large numbers at the start of the Seven Years' War in 1756, and finally bent to the demands of Irish Catholics for greater religious freedom beginning in the 1770s. Uh, Chapter 5. So... um, the French Revolution is obviously important in the history of toleration. And we do see a shift in this period um, from talking about a toleration mainly as a grant given by a ruler to certain favorite groups to talking about it as a universal right granted to all citizens, whatever their religious beliefs. And at the same time, armies grow massively yet again with the age of uh, universal um, uh, armies, the sort of the rise of the citizen soldier. Um, but underlying this rhetoric is still, I would argue, an approach to religious toleration that remains fundamentally pragmatic with more powerful minority groups granted more latitude than smaller and weaker ones. All right, so stepping back, this is a structural account of the history of toleration in that I see the changing fortunes of the state as the main driving force in dictating how and where toleration was granted and who received it. Um, and as I mentioned at the outset, I don't see the invention of new ideas as the main driver of change in the history of toleration. Instead, I see the state or rulers picking up long-standing ideas and ideologies and putting them to new use in, under new conditions. So far in this presentation, I haven't used the phrase, the enlightenment once. Um, and in my view, a lot of the ideas about religious toleration put forward by enlightenment thinkers in the 18th century were not that new. And those that were new uh, weren't put into practice as much as you might think. Now, I know that's a big claim. Um, I'm not gonna be doing a lot of enlightenment bashing in this talk or indeed in my book either. I don't want 100 intellectual historians coming after me. I I feel comfortable saying this among friends, although I heard this is also being uploaded later for more people to watch. But uh, you can certainly ask me questions about this later. Why am I doing this? Well, I think we're at something of an impasse in the history or historiography of toleration. And I hope that um, at least some intellectual historians will welcome my project as a way out of this impasse. So let me just briefly explain how I see the historiography of toleration at the moment. So there's long been uh, a Whig historiography of toleration that sees it as an outgrowth, outgrowth of the enlightenment. Basically people learn to be tolerant because thinkers like Locke, and Baal and then their popularizers taught them to be so, or if you're Jonathan Israel, it was because Spinoza taught them to be so. And what's happened over the past decade or two is that this intellectual historiography of toleration has been critiqued by social and cultural historians who have pointed out how little evidence there is that people actually became more tolerant across the early modern period. And as I mentioned, I too am skeptical of claims that you can see any real or measurable increase in feelings of religious tolerance in the broad majority of the population. There certainly are plenty of episodes of religious intolerance in the 18th century, like the anti Catholic Gordon riots in London in 1780 and also countless examples in the 19th 20th and even 21st centuries so social historians have basically yanked the rug out from under the uh, older Whig or intellectual interpretation arguing that the phenomenon that the intellectual interpretation is seeking to explain which is the growth of religious tolerance didn't exist at least not um, beyond intellectual circles not in the wider population. And that's quite a bitter pill for intellectual historians to swallow since it tends to render much of their project meaningless, or at least severely constrains its significance if Locke and Valen Spinoza were, didn't influence many people's behavior. I should also say too, the new social history of toleration is, is quite divorced from popular understandings of the early modern period, which still, I think, tend to see it as a time when bloody religious war taught Europeans to compromise and to think differently and to try to do better. Now, I'm hoping that my project can serve as a bridge between the intellectual and social interpretations. Uh, I think that, as I mentioned, even if we can't really talk about a rise in religious tolerance in this period, we can still talk about a rise of religious toleration, meaning grants of liberty by governments. I do think that's fairly obvious that by the end of the early modern period, more states have granted some form of toleration to at least some of the religious minorities than at the beginning of it. Um, So in other words, I too am a Whig. Uh, just a little bit less of one than some intellectual historians from earlier generations. Uh, and I also hope that in being aware, very aware of the counter currents of intolerance that eroded these grants of toleration and even negated them in some circumstances, I'll be able to draw into my interpretation, much of the evidence that has animated the social critique of the Wig tradition when it comes to toleration. Now, I'd like to say something that, I think should already be clear, which is that Ireland is at the absolute heart of this project and the idea of trading military recruitment for religious liberties is one that would be absolutely familiar to Irish historians. It's the dominant explanation for why um, first uh, the British government at Westminster and then Dublin Castle um, began to push for uh, granting limited religious freedoms to Irish Catholics in the 1770s. It was because they so desperately needed Catholic recruits in the war of American independence, which uh, the British were in danger of losing in an absolutely humiliating fashion. Um, so that relationship between religious toleration and military recruitment has been expounded quite brilliantly by Jacqueline Hill, Tom Bartlett and your own Patrick Walsh. I'm relying heavily on their work in making my own case. And indeed what you could say is that um, in this project I'm not trying to revise Irish history, but rather to show that it, Uh, the things that were happening in Ireland were also happening in many different states across Europe from France to the Dutch Republic, to Austria, to Russia. Uh, So right across Europe, military needs were in the driving seat when it came to the strategies and decisions of early modern rulers. Um, So I'm also very conscious that I'm not, at least so up to this point in my career, I have not been a historian of 18th century Ireland um, and I'm presenting to a number of experts in the field. So as I mentioned, I'm going to transition now um, to taking this opportunity to get some some help uh, with a couple of uh, especially tricky bits of evidence. So I'd like to start uh, actually with the year 1714. So um, this year saw a remarkable change in the legal landscape regarding Irish Catholics who wanted to serve abroad in foreign armies. For over a century before 1714 Dublin Castle had permitted and often encouraged young Irish Catholic men to leave the country and serve abroad in foreign armies, usually for Catholic powers, such as France and Spain. But beginning in 1714, these departures were forbidden by law and Irish authorities sought to prevent um, young Irish Catholic men from leaving for foreign service. And for the purpose of this discussion, I'm gonna call these two policies, the venting policy and the retention policy. So in the venting policy, Irish Catholics were free to leave for foreign service. They were often encouraged to do so. There were these great periods of venting. I won't go through them all in the 17th century. Uh, You're, I'm sure very familiar with these, Um, but there were steady outflows of migrants in other years as well uh, as uh, young Catholic men departed for service under the banners of Spain early in the 17th century and France later in the 17th century and into the 18th century. Um, part of the reason for this outflow, of course, is that British regiments stationed in Ireland, uh, with some exceptions at some t- points, like in, in the reign of James II, did not employ large numbers of Catholic troops. So if you were a young Catholic man and you wanted to fight, either you had to join a rebellion, as in the 1640s, or you had to seek employment on the continent, generally speaking. Uh, The word vent was indeed used, and the rationale for this policy was that these young men were disruptive, they would cause trouble if they were allowed to remain home, and they were less of a security risk abroad than they would be in Ireland. Uh, Occasionally, the venters would even suggest that if these men were sent abroad, many of them would die in battle conveniently enough, and few would return. Uh, And uh, indeed, actually in 1697, under the provisions of a law passed by the Dublin parliament, Irish Catholics who had departed without license for military service in France were forbidden from returning without explicit government permission. Now this policy was abandoned uh, in 1714. Um, Just very briefly, let me sketch why and what was happening. So um, it was abandoned in February, 1714 uh, when the Irish Privy Council proclaimed that anyone entering a foreign army without leave uh, would be prosecuted for high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, There was a widespread fear at the time that large-scale recruiting was taking place in Ireland for the so-called pretender, otherwise known as James Stewart, uh, the son of James II, uh, who at that point was no longer in France. He had been uh, exiled from France uh, after the uh, Treaty of Utrecht by his former patron, Louis XIV, and was now at the uh, bar le in the Independent Duchy of Lorraine. Uh, but his prospects uh, improved markedly in December of 1713 when Queen Anne became seriously ill and became very clear that she did not have long to live. Indeed, she died about six or seven months later. Uh, so in those early months between of uh, 1714 between the Queen's illness and her death, uh, there was a great deal of anxiety about possible Jacobite invasion. Uh, The Hanoverian succession was in view, but it was not yet completely secure. Um, And uh, meanwhile, Irish Whigs were claiming that Irish Tories were aiming to bring in popery by covertly supporting the pretender. Uh, And and Whigs were insinuating uh, that the Tory administration was allowing large numbers of Irish Catholics to depart for Lorraine, where they'd be assembled into an army and sent back to invade Ireland. Now, in fact, it seems unlikely that there were any Um, Jacobite recruiters from the Pretender operating in Ireland at this time. Instead, it seems that what was happening was that recruiters for the French army were deceiving young Catholic men by telling them that they would be sent to join the Pretender's army, when in fact they would be sent into the French service. So fears of the Pretender uh, were the proximate political cause for the ending of the venting policy, uh, which happens on the 2nd of February, 1714, with the proclamation of the Irish Privy Council. Uh, That policy is then enacted into law by the Westminster Parliament in the summer, um, barring any Irish or British subject from listing themselves in service of any foreign prince without the Queen's license for doing so. So um, the Dublin Parliament in 1715 then tried to follow up with its own Irish act to the same effect, but that was deemed superfluous by the uh, English Privy Council who vetoed it. So the rationale, rationale of this new policy was Uh, that young Catholic men were even more of a threat abroad than they were at home, because if they went abroad, they could gain weapons and military training and then return to Ireland as the core of an invasion force. Uh, Here's how Archbishop Bolter put it in 1730. All recruits raised here for France or Spain are generally considered as persons that may sometime or other pay a visit to this country as enemies. So what we see in 1714 is a shift in policy initiated by a Tory administration at the behest of Whig agitators later endorsed by Whig Parliament in 1715. So it's a bipartisan agreement and it's a broader shift in policy than strictly necessary. Uh, If the Irish Privy Council had been concerned only about the pretender, they could have banned recruiting for the pretender only, but instead they're banning recruiting for all foreign armies, including the French army without leave. And this policy shift uh, remains unshaken thereafter. Um, There still is rhetoric after 1714 about venting. Um, The idea of venting out troublesome Catholics does keep popping up. It's never far from Protestant minds, the idea that we'd be better off if the more disgruntled Catholics just left. Um, But uh, Dublin Castle does not pursue venting as a policy after 1714. There are new laws forbidding military recruitment without license passed in Dublin in 1720s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, and also in Westminster. All right, so um, I, could, I think you can see this shift from the venting to the retention policy as um, the first step towards toleration of Irish Catholics. I, I, I'm gonna explain a little bit later in the paper why I see it that way. It's a little bit ironic because the retention policy was itself highly illiberal, not liberal, It led to the punishment and execution of a considerable number of recruiters and and, and illegally enlisted men. There were executions carried out in Dublin in 1714, 22, 26, 32, 52, and 56. Uh, And the enactment of this new policy was resisted. Understandably, young Irish Catholic men did not appreciate being told they could no longer go and serve in the Irish Brigade in French service as their brothers and fathers had done before them. uh, there was an incident uh, I think I'll skip some of this um, an incident uh, where several hundred um, recruits were being assembled at Hothhead just north of Dublin to be picked up um, by recruiters for the French service uh, that when they were um, some of them were caught by um, Irish troops um, and brought back to prison in Dublin there were um, popular, um, there were some riots in the street of um, Dublin, especially in Catholic quarters. Uh, three of those men were later executed. So even though this new policy was um, highly illiberal in its implementation, it helped to lay the groundwork for later grants of liberty of conscience for Catholics. Um, and I, I hope you can see why this would be the case. So in order to later engage in meaningful negotiations with Uh, in which Catholic military service would be traded for toleration, that military service itself had to be seen as a thing of value, something that you, the British wanted to retain for themselves and not to allow rival nations to take advantage of. Um, So uh, if you did want to attract and recruit Catholics into your armies, you might want to start thinking about ways to uh, secure their allegiance, and one of which would be to accommodate their religious practices. So this is an important and interesting shift in 1714. I think it raises questions about why 1714, and that's one of the research problems I'm sort of working with right now. Um, I like your advice about. um, I mean, it's um, possible that some of the motives for the venting policy no longer applied, uh, that the venting policy had been a sign of the insecurity of Protestant elites who felt threatened by brigands uh, out in the countryside. They were anxious to get hostile young men out of the country. Um, perhaps by 1714 or 15, they felt uh, less vulnerable. Here's a quote from Archbishop King that you may have heard of before. It's quite famous. The, the papists, though more numerous, yet being poor, dispirited, and unarmed can't do us much mischief. Um, so uh, there's the whole question of political economy. Uh, to what extent were policymakers being influenced by ideologies that saw labor and population as part of national wealth? Um, and um, in times of labor shortages or higher, higher wages, rising wages, even a small number of departures. And we're mostly, when we're talking about the French recruiting, we're mostly talking only about a few hundred a year, um, as, apart from those great waves like 1691. Um, even a small number of departures could be seen as a threat to the I- Irish economy. Um, Archbishop Bolter uh, noted that uh, large employers were complaining that lusty young fellows are quitting them on this pretense of departing for military service abroad. Um, The one thing that, I mean, I I don't think this is necessarily new in 1714 either though, because uh, even if you look back to the 1640s, um, as early as July 1641, there's a memorial passed by the Irish parliament arguing against sending 16,000 Irishmen into Spanish service, which uses the exact same arguments later used to support the retention policies. The first being that um, these men, if they went off to Spain, they might return as the core of invading force. And the second being that allowing so many men to leave would be a drain on the nation's labor force. So um, in a way, I think what needs explaining is not why the retention policy was imposed in 1714, but why it had not been imposed even sooner than it was, uh, why the venting policy lasted as long as it did, given all the weight of arguments in favor of retaining Irish labor. Um, Maybe it was just thought not to be feasible to prevent Irish Catholics to leave. Given Ireland's long coastline, there were many different places where recruits could be picked up by longboats and and brought to French ships. But I think it's very much an open question. Why 1714? Why this didn't happen earlier? And I'd welcome any thoughts that any of you have uh, about how to think through this problem. All right, so I'd like to conclude this paper by jumping ahead to the year 1778 and considering one other source Um, that I found to be especially intriguing. Um, By the time you get to 1778, Irish Catholics have been serving in large numbers in the British Army for over 20 years, as I mentioned, first in the Seven Years' War and then in the American Revolutionary War, mostly recruited through various forms of subterfuge, don't ask, don't tell. Um, I've been researching this topic by looking at all the usual places, uh, National Library of Ireland, Prony, Q, uh, and of course Trinity College, Dublin, uh, your own archives. Uh, Very much following in the footsteps of Patrick and others, Uh, but at the same time, I've been employing a a small army of research assistants here, undergraduate research assistants at Northwestern to dive into the very rich collections of Irish newspapers, some of which are available on Microfilm and others uh, on uh, Irish newspaper archives online. Uh, In fact, this is a a glorious time to be doing research online because it's pretty much all we can do. Uh, so I have even more undergraduate research assistants working on Irish newspaper archives now than I did before, because with libraries closed, there's not much else they can do. Um, I can report there's quite a lot of useful material in the newspapers that has not yet made its way into the secondary literature. Uh, in part, I think this is because of an overreliance on John Brady's excellent book, Catholics and Catholicism in the 18th century press, which is a compilation of extracts from Irish newspapers. Uh, covering the general theme of Catholicism and um, has served as a shortcut to doing the tedious work of going through thousands of pages of newspapers. But uh, at 350 pages long, uh, it's not all that long given the size of the topic he aims to cover. And in case you've used Brady and wondered if he left things out, I can confirm that yes, he left a lot of things out. So 1778 uh, was the year of the first major Catholic Relief Act, sometimes called Gardner's Relief Act. uh, And as is well known, it was uh, explicitly designed to secure the allegiance of Irish Catholics and to promote military recruiting among the Catholic population. Uh, The newspaper sources I found don't alter this basic narrative, uh, but they do introduce some interesting details, including the extent to which Catholics themselves were lobbying for these changes. I'm just gonna summarize, I was gonna quote at length from an article, um, uh, but it's an article by an anonymous Catholic. I'll just summarize it. Um, It's a very recent discovery. Um, It's in the Hibernian Journal for January, 1778. Um, And it gives a taste of the arguments to be found in the newspapers. Basically, this is an unnamed Catholic proposing that uh, his Catholic fellows should go on strike until their religious demands were met that um, they've been treated badly by uh, Protestant administrators, that they've been taking their petitions for relief to Dublin Castle. And a petition was sent to Westminster in 1777, but it hadn't been, it been met both, uh, all their petitions have been met uh, with very little encouragement. And that as a result, in order to increase the pressure on, um, on British and uh, governors in Dublin Castle, uh, they should withdraw their military services. Okay, so um, I'll just leave it there because I'd like to leave plenty of time for uh, questions and comments. Uh, please don't hesitate to suggest other things that I should read. I'm still very much in learning mode when it comes to 18th century Ireland. So thank you very much, everyone.
0: Thank you. Um, I think that was really informative and it sounds like an absolutely wonderful big, big project. And I think just to get, in, to get the overview first is usually helpful and then to zone in on some of these Irish questions. There are already some questions coming in and I see we have a very large audience with some some experts in this area sitting around. So hopefully they will ask some pertinent questions. Um, first questions that I have coming in, um, one from Thomas O'Connor <coughs> asking about the role of conversion, unique and serial in facilitating the recruitment of soldiers from non-approved religious groups. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on that um, and sort of the role of conversion in all of this,
1: mm-hmm either in Ireland or wider, depending on. Right. Um, yes. So obviously that's a different way to gain or retain services of certain groups is instead of tolerating them to encourage them to convert. Um, and In a sense, that's actually part of the reason why I start as late as I do in 1570. I might go to that uh, because uh, in the period before 1570, there is such flux um, in uh, the size of religious groups in given states. You know, it's not clear before 1570 uh, whether France might actually turn into a Protestant country. (laughs) The Huguenot numbers are rising dramatically. Um, uh, The fate of the religious fate of France is very much up in the air um so until you have um a rough stabilization of religious demography where it's clear for example that the dutch republic even in the north is going to be about a third catholic um or that you know ireland most catholics are not going to convert in ireland uh until you have that um i don't think rulers have much of an incentive to deal um uh they're instead of, of i mean they're dealing in a sense that they're trying to figure out who's going to become dominant. Um, but, um, declining groups might not get much of a say. Um, it's only once uh, things stabilize a little bit that I think my project makes more sense that my model makes more sense, uh, where rulers are much more clear on who the majority is and who the minorities are. And then they rulers in different places and different times, make decisions about whether they want to double down on, um, buttressing the majority and gaining their support and allegiance uh, and favoring them or whether they want to uh, tap into the um, resources that they can get by uh, bringing um, religious minorities effectively into their governing coalition, if you wanna put it that way. Um, Now, uh, the rulers who do end up choosing um, basically to double down on the majority have the option of trying to grow that majority. And Louis XIV is their sort of a classic example of this. Uh, so conversion really matters to Louis. He, uh, the Huguenots throughout the 70th century have been serving in large numbers in the French army. And when you get to 1685, the Revocation of the Vietnam, they still represent about 10% uh, of, the, of the French army so uh he doesn't want to lose 10 percent of his troops i mean he has a lot of troops more than anyone else but he still doesn't want to lose 10 percent of them um so he engages in all kinds of schemes to uh to pay troops to convert uh to catholicism um so um officers of course are going to get cashiered if they don't convert uh, but he has this sort of tricky problem with the regular army troops which is that if he passes a policy that says um you're gonna be removed from the army if you don't convert to Catholicism. There are gonna be a lot of troops who are going to pretend to be Protestant just to be ejected from the army because a lot of them had signed up for longer terms of service than they really wanted to serve uh, just for the sake of getting the recruiting money. And that would be an easy route out of the army to pretend to be Protestant. So um, he never actually says that you can't be, uh, you can't be a Huguenot in the French army. And um, instead he tries to, he pays soldiers to convert um so that is another way you sort of uh if you are like louis um not very interested in accommodating your religious minority minorities um you could still try to capture some of their labor by convincing as many as possible to convert um now it would be interesting I, i i've forgotten who 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 presented this question but it would be interesting if there are examples it'd be you could I would imagine there might be, be similar examples in, in the early 18th century in Ireland. I haven't come across them myself. I'd love to hear about it if you want to email me if you know of any, I'd really appreciate it. Uh, where Irish Catholics were um being encouraged to convert as a means of getting into the uh the British regiment stationed in Ireland. Um that would be fascinating, actually. Uh I don't know of Dublin Castle specifically linking together. Uh the encouragement to convert and the encouragement to re- get then recruit people into the into the army, but perhaps on an individual level, this occasionally happened, and I'd love to have examples of that.
0: Yeah, I, just on that, I think I suspect it may be unlikely because Irish Protestants were discouraged from military service as well because of the need oh, yeah. to the Protestant ascendancy. Right. So there are, of course, stray Catholics who pose as Protestants, and there are very early encouragements even from. Chief Secretary Edward Suttle, I think in 1704, looking for Catholics to s- join the Navy, describing them as strong, lusty men, which echoes a phrase you quoted much later from Bolter, intriguingly. Um, yeah. A bunch of questions here and a number of really interesting ones. Next question comes from Benjamin Bankhurst, who's asking about the demobilization of Catholic troops and practical toleration within the British imperial state. For example, did land grants for Irish and Scottish Catholic troops in Canada? And lead to, to promote pragmatic reforms in the administering of a conquered Catholic colony, for
1: example, Quebec. Mm-hmm. Sorry, could you repeat the question? I can't actually read the questions. I can't see them in the chat in the chat. So this is demobilization of Catholic Church land grants and go back. Yeah,
0: essentially, um, you know, about the sort of demobilization and practical toleration within the British imperial state. Did the did land grants for Irish and Scottish Catholics lead to pragmatic reforms in administering of a conquered Catholic colony? i.e. Quebec?
1: Uh, so I'm not familiar with this at all. Demobilization of, of practical toleration um, and land grants um, in Quebec. I, Benjamin, you're going to have to tell me more about, more about this than I do. So is this, this is happening in the 70s, 60s, and 70s. Um, and, and why would this cut against toleration if Irish Catholics and Scottish Catholics are being granted land grants to Quebec? I'm, just, I'm, I'm not sure I... I can answer the question, um, but maybe we could discuss this further. Um, sorry, I, I feel slightly hampered by <laughs> yes, I'm slightly hampered. talking to black screens.
0: I'm just going to see if I can bring Ben in. Ben, if you want to, I'm just going to allow you to talk.
2: All right. Hi, Patrick. Thank you.
0: Not OK, um, I guess
2: my question is r- related to um, as when it comes to sort of the the demobilization of these uh these imperial armies after the seven years war and then also after the american revolution you do have a large number of troops that stay in the in the colonies um or or uh, or are offered uh land within uh within north america and i you know i don't know the answer to this but my impression is that the large the increasing numbers of uh of Catholic soldiers decommissioned, demobilized in Quebec uh, does lead to to calls for greater toleration. Obviously, there's the practical concerns of administering a French colony, but the fact that uh, a large proportion of the Anglo uh, or English-speaking population uh, also happens to be Catholic uh, might contribute to those those concerns for practical toleration. Right, that this is, uh, so that, that's just, uh, I was wondering if you have any uh, any further information about that, because I, n- I note that many of the um, sort of English speaking congregations within Quebec are founded roughly uh, in the, in the mid 1760s. So when I assume it's, it's down to
1: demobilization. Wow, I'm delighted to hear this. This was one of the next things on my to-do list. I'm a very long to-do list at the moment because I'm covering a lot of countries, but uh, I, am I'd love to know more about what happened to these uh, Irish Catholic troops after they were sent to America. Um, so they, they they first start get, uh, getting into the Irish army, uh, the Irish regiments in large numbers in 1756. And then a lot of them are sent over in 1757 and 1758. And um, I was thinking of, okay, actually I, sh- I need to now go look into the uh, literature on the Seven Years' War to see uh, what happens to them after they get sent into battle, but then to look keep looking forward and seeing what happens to them after the war of course the fear in Ireland was always that they would come return Uh, that was the fear behind the venting falls they would return to Ireland and and cause trouble but instead uh, being settled in Quebec uh, uh, I could see how this would be a brilliant solution from the point of view of a British imperial administrator um, and helping to secure Quebec uh, and avoid any troubles back in Ireland at one stroke so again we have um, this story that I think you can trace back to the 1680s as well of uh, taking um, nonconformist populations and then imp- sort of deploying them imperially. Um, you see this with Huguenots as well on the French side that they're, uh, they're sent to certain places at certain times where the empire needs building up. Um, so um, I would love to talk a little bit more with you about this, Benjamin, and I'll certainly be sending you an email to, uh, to learn more about the sources that you found because they sound very exciting. Great, thank you.
0: Super. I'm now going to bring in Martin Powell, who has a question about the penal laws. So, Martin, if you want to pose your question there about 1714,
3: thanks, Patrick. It's it's not um not 1714 particularly, but uh, but I suppose the the paradox it, that in some ways or one of the, the paradoxes that, that you began your paper with, which is um, in, in this case the fact that uh, the penal laws go a long way towards demilitarising uh, Catholics in in this period, either through Stopping them from holding arms or banning the kinds of horses that they can they can own seem to make them a more palatable uh, choice for the, for the for the government in terms of military partners. And I just wondered about the the, the, the passage of the penal laws during this early period, and and your 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 thoughts of, uh, about the the process of, um, um, of, uh, of of bringing Catholics into the um, into the, the military picture.
1: Right. So it makes them a more palatable choice for as military partners, even in the 1690s. Um, is that, or, or are you thinking later?
3: You know, throughout this period, it's a gradual process, really. That the 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 oddity is that is that you're demilitarizing them. You you're you're stripping them of their of, the, of their weapons, their their horses. But at, at the, as this as this process is continuing, um, they're at the same time being seen as the. Um, as the solution, if you like, for military, um, military endeavor by the, by the British state. Hmm. Because the explanation is partly the, 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 the group that's actually demilitarizing them is different to the group wanting them to serve in the empire. So, so, so yeah, I see. Castle versus British government split, uh, I would perhaps suggest is, is, um, is, is is at the heart of that. Um, Yeah each seeing the Catholic the Catholic population in a rather different way um, right. I, I think I think that that, that difference is, is crucial to the nature of the way in which the penal laws are, uh, are passed but there's probably a knock-on effect for your your um your mm. your, uh, your project as well
1: very interesting yeah I completely agree um, different ways um, yeah so a lot of the um, after the Limerick a lot of the Irish Catholics that don't end up in France um get captured in various ways by the British. And there's a moment where William um, is thinking, oh, I'll send them to the Spanish Netherlands. Uh, they can fight in the wars there on our, on our side. But then there's a fear that they're gonna desert uh, and go over to the French regiments, um, the Irish regiments in French service. So instead he sends them to Austria to go and fight the Turks. There's several thousand Irish Catholics that get sent to Austria. That's another thing on my own do lists. I wanna know what happens to those Catholics after they end up in, in Austria. Um, You know, some of them embed themselves in the Austrian army and become, uh, you know, there is quite a lot of uh, Irish presence in the Austrian army throughout the 18th century. Um, But yes, I think you're absolutely right. This split, um, this is sort of a classic theme of of the story I'm telling, Uh, the the split between um, rulers or imperial administrators who might be seeing the advantages of deploying uh, a broader range of of religious groups in various ways, and then um, Dublin Castle is, has to be responsive to Irish Protestant opinion, and um, they're much more willing to sacrifice these uh, potential military advantages uh, for the sake of satisfying that, those, uh, those people, so.
0: Super, um, I'll go to I have two, I think, comparative questions here, and I'm gonna bring in Michal Shokru first, um, and then, then Andrew McKillop after him. Michal, over to you
3: uh thanks um very much uh, patrick and thanks for a great paper i really enjoyed enjoyed it, i have to say um and it sounds like a fascinating project I, I'm, I'm just sort of wondering to what extent you see the irish experience as as really significantly different to the rest of europe uh, as as really uniquely official discriminations to get directed against a religious majority not a minority and does this kind of create problems for your model when you're looking at this distinction between uh, sort of popular tolerance and official toleration? Right.
1: Ah, uh, yes. I mean, it's not totally unique. Uh, there are parts of the Dutch Republic where Catholics are in the majority. The generality lands in the South. Um, and when Prussia takes Silesia from Austria, uh, at least the southern part of Silesia is majority Catholic. Um, and uh, the Dutch and Prussian uh, administrators are quite happy to tap into those resources. And Dutch Catholics are allowed to serve in the Dutch army. Prussian Catholics are allowed to serve in the Prussian army. In- indeed, there are, are Prussian Catholic army chaplains in the Prussian army from the 1720s on. Um, but this, I yes, obviously, there, it's not that Ireland is all the same as these other places. Clearly, it's being ruled in a very different way. Um, and uh, Dutch Catholics in the generally allied lands are not losing their lands. And Silesian Catholics are not losing their lands. Um, so that uh, when you're taking away land as well, it, it requires a, a much more extensive uh, clampdown. Um, I mean, my sort of gut base level instinctual uh, <laughs> comparative point to make here, which isn't all that sophisticated is that Ireland is an island and it's easier to defend. Um, and it gives you uh, gives it, uh, the British the latitude to do things that uh, the Dutch would never dream of doing in the generality lands. If you're gonna alienate uh, a population, you're not gonna wanna alienate the Catholics who live right next to the Spanish Netherlands, which is where you're being attacked from. Uh, they'll ver- they will very quickly switch sides when they get an opportunity, as in uh, sort sixteen seventy two, for example, when France invades uh, the Dutch Republic. Uh, so I do think the Irish experience is significantly different. Um, it's not uh, purely identical, but I'll leave it at that. So I can we can get more questions.
0: Now let's bring in Andrew McKillop. Um, thanks, Scott. I do enjoyed that uh, immensely. Thank you, and learned a lot. And the model you presented. Well, it's very state centric. It suggested that states are the prime actors in this. I, I wonder what role you think sovereignty-wielding
3: corporations play in this. I'm thinking here particularly of the fact that the VOC recruits large amounts of German Catholics. The Compagnie des Andes um, is recruiting French, um, Swiss, from the Swiss cantons. Um, the EIC does exactly the same
0: with Irish Catholics the 1740s. In other words, is it your states that are learning to do this and implementing this, or are they learning from the corporations?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I would imagine you would think that the companies would even be less beholden to public opinion, I think you do see that. You see uh, the East India Company recruiting widely uh, among Irish Catholics, sometimes surreptitiously, sometimes without any license at all, uh, and getting into trouble with Dublin Castle for doing so. Uh, well, before the Seven Years' War. Um, um, and the VOC, you probably tell a similar story. Um, and that's not entirely surprising. I mean, sort of lurking behind um, all this is possibly some kind of quasi Marxist take. I don't want to necessarily want to say this, but I am now. So uh, this is just something I was just thinking about last week. Uh, so I'm just putting this out there, but uh, that. Uh, you're moving from a society of orders and hierarchies to one that's uh, based more on uh, markets where people are um, being evaluated based on, um, you know, as, as individual units uh, who can be brought in for all kinds of reasons by companies uh, recruited for and are being paid as individuals and they have to be, uh, you can't just command your leads, um, your, your feudal tenants to go and fight for you, you have to Um, negotiate and bargain, and you go onto the international mercenary market and you sign contracts. uh, And um, those contracts include, they're called capitulations, they often include religious clauses that specify what kind of freedoms of a religious minority, uh, you know, a troop, troops, what, you know, whether they can have a chaplain of their own faith and this sort of thing. Um, And, um, yeah, so I I, wouldn't be surprising if companies were also contributing to this. Uh, Not every European state has a company like the VOC and the EIC. Um, So I'm not sure that it's generalizable in exactly the same way. Uh, I think states, one of the attractions of this model for me is that states are all under these increasing pressures of larger armies in the 18th century. It's not that there are certain states that are being affected them and, and not others. So it could be an explanation for the very widespread uh, push towards religious toleration that we see. But I I could definitely see how in in those states that do rely heavily on these companies, uh, especially the Dutch Republic and England, uh, Britain, that this would be a contributing factor.
0: Just on that, I suppose that they are drawing from multinational labor forces. And likewise, I suppose the way the British state increasingly draws on subsidy troops from some of the German lands, and that requires sort of complications around religion. Does that influence British policy towards Ireland? Stephen Conway has made suggestions about some of the ways in which they, did they deal with other Catholic territories in around the 1750s, 60s from the Orca through to Granada, but also about some of the ways these subsidy troops play a role in changing British imperial policy. Have you, have you thought about those at all and sort of the Hessians and so forth?
1: Yeah, and it definitely comes up in the discussions in the uh, 70s and 80s about granting toleration to Irish Catholics uh, in sort of a way that you might not expect. Um, So (laughs) the argument is often made, oh, we we need these troops. Why do we need these troops? We could just be getting troops from Germany. Why do we need to give toleration to Irish Catholics? Um, And uh, the argument is partly often made that Irish Catholics are cheaper than the German mercenaries. Uh, They are, it costs less, um, to levy them. Um, typically in the 70s, 70s, uh, the recruiting money is less. Um, so there's kind of this financial, um, financial thing going on. So yeah, um, I mean, I think lurking behind this, there's, I see more stickiness, I guess, in the mercenary market. Um, you know, the classic fiscal military state take on mercenaries is that they're all fungible. You know, money is what matters, right? Uh, If you have enough money, you can always buy enough men. So it's really about fiscal capacity. That's what drives success and failure in war in the 18th century. And so um, I'm not entirely convinced by this. Um, I'm not sure that actually you can always get all the troops you need. And the reason I'm not convinced by this is that I'm reading all these reports from British administrators who are, British administrators in the 70s 70s are freaking out that they can't get enough troops. So there, there, there is, I think there's more stickiness than the fiscal narrative, military narrative that literature has led for us to believe. Us to believe. And there are moments of shortage uh, uh, where no matter how much money you have, you can't necessarily get the trained men you need right away. And Irish Catholics becoming really important in the story in those moments.
0: I think I now know why you were saying military-physical state rather than physical-military. <laughs> I think there is an important point of it, emphasis there. Yeah. So I have another final question so far, in a way, from Liam Chambers. Um, so Liam, over to you if you want to pose your question. Thank you, Patrick. Can you hear me okay? Yep. Yeah, um, and thanks a million, Scott. It's, it's always good to be um, encouraged to think of Irish history in, in bigger contexts where, where, where we don't always do it, so that was great. Just going back to seventeen fourteen, and I'm fascinated by by the idea that this is a, a key turning point. And I, I'm just wondering, um, you know, Irish Catholic recruitment into the French army takes off again in the seventeen twenties into the seventeen thirties. I mean, there's a real high point in the late seventeen twenties. So France and 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 Britain are obviously in an alliance, and there's a lot of connivance in that recruitment in that period. So is is the idea that seventeen fourteen
2: is a kind of an, an abstract turning point uh, uh, rather than a practical one.
1: Right. Um, so you're, you're probably familiar with this episode. Is it 1730 where Count Broglie is authorized to levy 750 troops for the French army in Dublin and surroundings? And that goes very badly.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, they have to cancel the whole thing. So uh, George II authorizes this recruiting because they're at peace at the time and he's like okay fine you can go and levy 750 Irish catholics cool. i don't have a problem with that so this is breaking with the retention policy cool. um but then when it comes down to it uh once the recruiters show up in dublin they don't make any headway and there's uh, such a backlash in protestant opinion that dublin castle uh, basically makes them leave so they never end up recruiting any troops cool. so um it is yes um it's not an abstract turning point because it is a turning point of policy and the policy doesn't get reversed. Um, but there are certainly still um, people who are thinking in the old way. Uh, the vending policy doesn't go away in that sense. Uh, there are people who, and it pops up in other ways too. I mean, you could say that shipping a lot of Irish Catholics off to the empire is itself a kind of venting. Uh, and that's certainly something that Dublin, Dublin Castle supports especially when you're shipping an Irish Catholic at certain moments, especially when you're shipping an Irish Catholic instead of an Irish Protestant where you're being forced to choose. You have to send a soldier to America. Who's it gonna be the Irish Catholic or the Irish Protestant? There's key moments like 1737, where they decide we're gonna send the Irish Catholics off so we can retain the Irish Protestants. Um, so yeah, it's a definitely, it's messy, it's complicated, but this this is actually a very clear shift in policy. You can locate it in 1714 and it doesn't get reversed. I
0: think Just on that sort of exchange, there's a, there's a wonderful exchange in 1730 um, at, the, at the peak of sort of Ulster emigration to Pennsylvania or just past the peak, that first wave where the Secretary of State in London, Charles Delafay, suggests, or undersecretary, suggests that perhaps we should swap Irish Catholics going to France for Irish Protestants going to Ulster. They're looking, they're literally thinking, it's literally in that sort of population thinking, they're thinking of ways, it's a classic state of political economy, for every Presbyterian that goes to America, we let a Catholic go to France. Wow. Hardwick supports them, but nobody in Dublin supports them. So it's an intriguing, again, intriguing example of that. Um, yeah, just one more question here from Andrew, Dor- Andrew Dorman. Andrew, do you want to pose your question there before we finish up?
2: Yeah, um, thank you very much for that, Scott. That was a brilliant, brilliant paper. Um, so you mentioned the 1670, or 1770s and 1780s. Um, during this period, you've got kind of an increased dissatisfaction with the army at home, particularly in urban areas, the rise of uh, hawking and that kind of thing. I'm just wondering... Was there ever a thought that the you would put more Catholics in the army to almost improve their image among the majority, or was that considered at all?
3: Wow. Uh,
1: with the Catholic majority. Um, so is that what you're suggesting? Incre- yeah. Improve the image with the Catholic majority, because that, that's... almost that...
2: more relatable, I suppose.
1: Yes, that's really interesting. Oh, man, it brings up all kinds of... Uh, analogies and parallels that you could think about with contemporary policing, doesn't it? Yeah, um,
2: that's, that's what <laughs> I've been diving into that a little bit. <laughs>
1: yeah, I would love to have evidence for that. Um, and of course, the volunteers, you have to start thinking about... Yeah, the are they being
2: replaced they, by the volunteers? To so,
1: or whether, um, also whether Catholics should be allowed in the volunteers. And, you know, in the early phases, there's more controversy about that. Later, it's clear that volunteers are fine with, most Protestant volunteers are fine with Catholics. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, no, I... Um, that would be another tool in the toolkit of Imperial Administrators. Um, but if you have any evidence of that, I would love to see it. I don't have it myself, but that that would be a really fertile line of, of, of research. I'll send you an email then. Thank you.
0: OK, um I think just very quickly, we just have a point coming in here from James Kelly, just suggesting and backing you up that the shift in policy in 1714 reflecting uneasiness on and anticipation of the Hanover, Hanoverian succession and the fear of Jacobite intervention. So, the AC mm-hmm. is not as very much in that moment. Um, and Thomas O'Connor, again, just raising the question about sort of recruitment as a competition, especially in terms of economic prosperity, whether this was the case if for Ireland in the second half of the 18th century. I don't know what you're going to say anything about the sort of military labor market, it's in terms of the point you were making earlier about the fungibility of, of um,
1: recruits. Right. Um, yeah, I really need to do a lot more work. Um, nailing down precisely how the market's changing over time, um, whether recruiting is more expensive at certain times than others. You know, the five pounds recruiting money in, in Britain is pretty standard across the 18th century. Um, in Ireland, it's usually less. But um, I'm starting to figure out whether that's rising and falling, whether it's, it's usually around three pounds, but whether it's, it drops at certain points. And then correlating it as well to, uh, you know, rises and falls in the regular labor market and in the economy, times of dearth. Um, and, uh, when labor is most needed, uh, in non-military matters, um, you would imagine obviously that, uh, in an economic boom, it's going to be much, I mean, if you don't just imagine, this is the truth that in an economic boom, it's much harder to fill the ranks. Um, so for example, what's happening in 1778 in the economy. Um, so I need to do more of this work, but I'm, I'm aware that this is a, yet another thing on my to-do list. Thank you.
0: Excellent. Well, I think we've had a very stimulating question and answer session. I hope that's been useful. And I think what's striking is and I think the great advantage of this format, not only do we have a paper from California, but we've had questions from Bristol, Glasgow, Western Virginia, Limerick, and many places in between, and that's just the ones I can identify. Um, so again, I think that's really, really good. Um, and just to thank Scott again, unfortunately we can't do that in the usual way, but that will have to wait till the next time you're in Dublin. And just also to alert everybody that our next talk, next Monday, will again be returning to the team the of Empire. And Professor Jane Olmeyer, Erasmus Smith, Professor of History here at Trinity, will be talking about, will be giving us a preview of her um, Ford lectures and um, to be delivered in Oxford in the new year. And um, we'll be talking about Ireland, Empire, and the early modern world. And she'll also be talking a little bit about some new initiatives that we have ongoing here at Trinity and investigating Trinity's imperial connections as well. So I hope to see many of you, many, not most of you, at that, should be a fascinating talk. Otherwise, I just want to thank everybody for their participation, for their comments, for their questions, and to thank Scott for an absolutely wonderful paper and good luck with the project. Really looking forward to hearing so much more about this in the future. Thank you.